Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The State of Our Union is the lead is starting right now. President Biden using tonight's address before divided Congress and country to tout his accomplishments and perhaps lay out his case for another term. But how might his message land with the American people who, according to polls, disapprove of the job he's doing? Rare cries of joy as a little girl and her younger sibling are pulled from the rubble alive. Good news amid the growing death and destruction from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. The death toll now soaring to more than 7,200 people. Then, if you've flown in the past few weeks, you know the skies are not very friendly. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff plans. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff plans. An IT meltdown, one airline grounded during the holidays, two runway near misses. Now lawmakers want answers. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper on Capitol Hill, where in just a few hours, President Biden is going to deliver his second State of the Union address. The speech tonight is meant to lay out President Biden's goals for the coming year, but it's also a test run to sharpen his message as he is expected to launch a re-election campaign. I sat down with the president and other TV news anchors this afternoon for an off-the-record conversation. I can say the president seemed in good spirits. He seemed eager to share his optimism with the American people. We do expect from separate reporting to hear President Biden mention a wide variety of topics tonight, including inflation and the economy, health care, policing reform, combating the opioid crisis, topics that are familiar ones for the president. But the dynamic, of course, is much different than last year's speech. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will be sitting over his shoulder as Biden delivers his remarks, since the House of Representatives is now controlled by Republicans. CNN's Phil Mattingly starts off our coverage from the White House with a closer look now at the last-minute preparations happening right now. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. For President Biden, a State of the Union address that carries the weight of far more than a laundry list of policy priorities, where two years of legislative wins, rapid economic recovery, and a public health crisis waning. I want to talk to the American people and let them know the state of affairs. Have given Biden and his top advisors no shortage of accomplishments to highlight in front of Congress and millions watching at home in prime time. But the moment and the audience critical for a White House still grappling with an electorate, registering widespread unease, a newly divided Congress, and the partisan battles ahead. Mr. President, congressional Republicans are ready to act. All as a series of real-time challenges have required revisions in the months-long process of crafting the speech. From mass shootings and police brutality to a brazen challenge from a geopolitical adversary as the largest European ground war in 80 years grinds on. Moments that will be highlighted by First Lady Jill Biden's guests for the speech, as Biden presses to elevate his administration's progress from blowout job gains just last week and an agenda, now law, and taking hold across the country. 
It's about making investments in America's cities, towns, heartlands, and rural America. It's about making things here in America again. It's about good jobs. It's about the dignity of work. It's about respect and self-worth. And it's about damn time we're doing it. But also a clear message that there is more work to be done. We're the only nation in the world that's come out of every crisis stronger than before we went in. And that's what we're doing now. A not so subtle hint about another major speech that advisors say may come in the next few weeks. So let me ask you a simple question. Are you with me? And Jake, while there is no timeline about a potential re-election announcement, one thing is clear. White House officials don't view this as just an opportunity to look back at the progress of the last two years. In fact, one of the constant threads throughout the president's remarks uh, tonight, according to advisors, finish the job. They know there's more work to be done, and they believe the president can demonstrate that he's the man to do it, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly at the White House for us. Thank you so much. CNN's Caitlin Collins and Abby Phillip uh, are here with me now. Caitlin, how much of tonight's speech do you think is going to be President Biden testing out a possible message for his 2024 re-election campaign. I don't think all of it will be about 2024. It's not going to be this big campaign rally style speech. It'll be a more serious speech reflecting on what they've done and what they think that will look like over the next two years as it's implemented. Because the White House is looking at the same polls we are that show Biden is not getting a lot of credit from Americans. I think over 60 percent of them don't think he's accomplished that much. They believe that's just because it hasn't basically set in yet. It has not taken effect. People haven't gotten to realize some of those legislative accomplishments that he definitely has gotten done. I think that will be more of the message tonight, selling that. And then what you'll see is the sales pitch is him on the road going forward after the State of the Union. I do think that what we'll see in this speech is uh, Biden making the pitch for not just the next year or the State of the Union as it stands right now, but what he would like the American people to allow him to do, uh, perhaps in another term. I think that a lot of the things you're going to hear about today are not going to be things that they reasonably think can be done in this particular Congress as it's constituted with Republicans running the House and Democrats with a very slim majority. So all State of the Union's large wish list items, but I think Biden is going to be road testing an argument to the American people that he needs more time to do a lot of the things that he's promised when he ran the first time and also that he has on his agenda for the next two years. How do you think, Kaylin, how do you think this speech is going to be different than if Democrats had been able to hold on to the House of Representatives, which, you know, historically is a very difficult thing to be done. But I just mean in terms of the fact that there is this reality that's going to be sitting over his shoulder, Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker who disagrees with Biden on a whole host of things. Yeah, it's going to look a lot different than what it has in the past. I think what they'll try to use with that is showing, you know, the chaos that we've seen happen with Republicans as they were electing House Speaker. They're going to be really seeking to draw a divide. We just had an on-the-record briefing with Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer, the two Democratic leaders over here on the Hill. That's what they said they believe a lot of this will look like, is showing what that divide can be. But also they're walking into this with better odds in the House than they had than they thought they were going into in the midterm elections. They actually have a, a replica Republicans have a razor thin majority in the House. So they think that serves them. And I think they will be trying to to draw a, a divide in what they've gotten done over the last two years and not expecting a ton of legislation to happen over the next two years. And Speaker McCarthy reportedly has reminded his caucus that they need to behave. Uh, and we've seen them not just misbehaving in his leadership race, right. uh, but also, you know, in the last year's State of the Union address and, and previous thing, uh, previous events where Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, just to be fair, were making spectacles of themselves. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a conference that he's dealing with that actually feels emboldened despite 
not un- before, despite Republicans underperforming in the last midterms. And so I think McCarthy, this is actually a test for him. Uh, can he convey the importance of decorum in that room to a group of members who each one of them feels like they are each empowered uh, in their own right to do, frankly, whatever they want? Um, I don't think, though, you know, maybe I'll eat my words later tonight, but I don't think that we will see Marjorie Taylor Greene necessarily, or even a Lauren Boebert oh, doing Boebert the and, same and Green. thing. Okay. I mean, Green, for example, has <laughs> she has tried cotton. to integrate herself in Republican leadership, and she she's yeah. trying to portray herself in a very different light. And so, um, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw Republicans really toning it down. They have the gavel now. There's really no reason for them to make a spectacle, but. Who I'll knows? eat my words later tonight when we're talking at 11 o'clock tonight. <laughs> um, and the, and uh, the State of the Union from the oldest president in American history, the response will be delivered by the youngest governor in America, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, who was Donald Trump's, President Trump's press secretary. What do you expect she'll, she's going to say? Yeah, well, obviously she's going to push back. They're going to talk about what we've seen happen this week. Exa- I mean, look at how Republicans seized on what was happening with this surveillance balloon from China that was floating across and how they used that to criticize Biden's leadership. We're going to to see so much more of that, of course, as we are gearing up for that expected re-election announcement from President Biden whenever it does come. And so they're going to draw a sharp contrast. The other thing, though, is not just the formal response from Republicans, which Governor Sanders is expected to give. Also, former President Trump is expected to weigh in as well. He'll be giving his own response, essentially. People will be watching to see what he says, how he criticizes Biden in that sense. I think it's pretty obvious what he will say. They will not think that he did a good job, but that is something that they are going to be using tonight. It's a pretty thankless task, giving the response to whoever the president of the United yeah. States is. I, w- I was going to be mean and give you a, a quiz, a pop quiz about who gave the response last year. It was the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds. But but it, it's it's not, you might think, oh, yeah. anybody would want to have that national audience. Not necessarily. Yeah, ask Marco Rubio, uh, who it became a punchline for, for Donald Trump, actually, on the campaign trail when he gave his response. It's a tough job. And honestly, the task is really just to do no harm. You want to present the alternative uh, to what uh, the president is saying up there, but not make it about yourself. It has, in a lot of times in the past, been seen as a platform for people with aspirations, as Marco Rubio was seen at one point, as Bobby Jindal was seen as at one point. I think at this point, it's not quite that anymore. I think people recognize you just need someone competent. I think Kim Reynolds was actually a great example of how a competent, do-no-harm kind of speech just lays out the Republican agenda, doesn't uh, make any huge waves, but gives uh, Americans who are interested just something else to chew on as they digest what the president has said. I I mean, one last thing, just as Caitlin was saying about the 60%, Uh, statistic of Americans who don't think Biden did anything. I don't know that 60% of Americans know much about any one topic, right? And so it's very hard to expect that Americans are going to digest a speech that is already probably too long. It's going to be like probably an hour long uh, and take a whole lot away from it. And so for Biden, I think a lot of what is going to happen tonight is he needs to deliver it strongly to present to the American people a picture of a president and who has uh, who has two more years in it, him, and maybe four more years after that. One thing Chuck Schumer, Senator Schumer said earlier was saying that he, 
it's not necessarily how Biden delivers it that he's concerned about. He wants more people watching. That is what they want because yeah. those numbers are real. People aren't feeling the effects of it. They want people to hear President Biden lay out what he's gotten done. All right. Caitlin and Abby, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Join me and my colleague Anderson Cooper this evening for special live coverage of President Biden's State of the Union address that begins at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Coming up, Chinese government officials now say that all that debris from the suspected spy balloon the U.S. shot down, hey, that belongs to China, not the United States. Give it back. Then, new accusations against the five Memphis police officers charged with the beating death of Tyree Nichols. These involve a different attack three days earlier. In our world lead, Chinese government officials today are protesting, claiming that that debris from the suspected spy balloon that hovered over North America for more than a week but was shot down by the U.S. belongs to them, and the U.S. should hand over the debris. The statement comes just days after the Biden administration shot it down over the Atlantic off the coast of South Carolina. Today, the U.S. Navy released these photos showing the balloon being pulled out of the water. The debris will be sent for testing to determine the type of intelligence that may have been on board. CNN's Oren Lieberman takes a look now at the new information that the U.S. is learning. Bit by tattered bit, salvage teams have pulled the remnants of the Chinese high-altitude balloon out of the Atlantic Ocean, learning its secrets now just a matter of time. The first recovered parts already at Quantico for FBI analysis. CNN has reviewed parts of an Air Force report from last April that showed the trajectory of one high-altitude balloon that flew around the world in 2019 during the Trump administration. According to the report, called People's Republic of China High-Altitude Balloons, the balloon was launched and controlled by China as it drifted near Hawaii and over southern Florida at 65,000 feet. But it's unclear when the U.S. first became aware of the 2019 balloon or its intent. A House Armed Services Committee hearing on the threat China poses to U.S. national security focused on this balloon. Make no mistake, that balloon was intentionally launched as a calculated show of force. We have to stop being naive about the threat we face from China. The commander of Northern Command in NORAD, General Glenn Van Herc, acknowledged there was an awareness gap that allowed three balloons to overfly parts of the United States during the Trump administration. China's initial apology for this latest incident they claimed was a weather balloon has turned into indignation. China says the balloon debris doesn't belong to the U.S. and they want it back. Mm, what I can say is that this airship belongs to China and not the United States. A high-level group of congressional leaders will get a briefing tomorrow, that group known as the Gang of Eight. Their staffers got a briefing earlier today. That briefing is expected to come from NORTHCOM and NORAD Commander General Glenn Van Hurt. Jake. All right, Oren Lieberman of the Pentagon Force, thanks so much. Joining me now to discuss, Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida. He's a member of the House Intelligence Committee and an Army veteran congressman. Uh, the Gang of Eight, including uh, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, uh, Congressman Turner, mm -hmm. they're expected to be briefed tomorrow on what the U.S. officials have been able to learn about the suspected spy balloon. What kind of information do you want to learn from that briefing? Well, I want to learn uh, what the Chinese were able to extract. Uh, we've heard from the Pentagon there really wasn't much additive value to their satellites, but Clearly, the Chinese think there is uh, in, in doing this incredibly provocative act. Uh, I'm also very interested in the timing of it. Why now? Right on the heels of Biden and Xi's kind of detente type engagement and just before uh, Secretary Blinken was going out. Uh, so, you know, sending it over the continental United States, which they did deliberately, that is very clear. Uh, it was incredibly provocative. I mean, it's kind of a 
middle finger, frankly, yeah. to uh, our, our diplomacy. So what were they thinking and why and what were their motivations and what were they able to get and transmit back? And what do you make of the Chinese demanding the debris be returned to them? Uh, given that's that a it's- bunch of garbage. I mean, that's just rich, right? I mean, it, we shot it down over our territorial waters. Now, I would argue we should have shot it down in the other ocean, in the Pacific Ocean, not the Atlantic Ocean. Before it entered U.S. airspace? Bef- well, as it entered our nautical waters, clearly on a trajectory that we could see was entering U.S. airspace and Canadian airspace. So I also want to understand the decisions and why they were made to not take this out on the front end. If we saw the trajectory, it was over our territorial waters, and we know that there's a history of them having these spy balloons. Well, let's talk about that because CNN has some exclusive reporting about a U.S. military report from last year that suggested a a Chinese spy balloon circumnavigated the globe, including flying over Hawaii and Florida your home state, in Mm -hmm. 2019, during the Trump administration. The Biden White House has offered uh, briefings about this to uh, uh, Trump officials, as they say. But listen to what former Trump Defense Secretary Mark Asper told Caitlin Collins on CNN This Morning just today. I haven't heard from them yet, but we'll see. Give them a few more days. What questions do you still have about this whole incident? Well, why didn't we detect it, right? That's question number one. So, uh, and, and how, what are we doing to address it? So that's a big issue. How concerned are you about this intelligence gap and not knowing about this? Well, look, look, first let's talk for a second, though, about the kind of White House's messaging. I mean, when they first came out and said, no, no, this happened under Trump, too, the strong implication was hey, quit beating us up for not taking stronger action. Neither did Trump or, or his officials. And it was only after a whole slew of yeah. very credible national security officials said, we didn't know about it. Now the story has changed and saying, oh, well, it was undetected back then. There was no way they could have known about that's it. Fair. So that's, look, that's I mean, true. like, come that's... on, I think there was some spin sure. got ahead of the facts uh, from the Pentagon. That said, I mean, we still have a lot to learn. Could our censors not detect it? Were they pointed in the wrong direction? Is it an altitude issue? These things move in between where we can detect aircraft and where we can detect satellites. Did the Chinese know that and exploit it? Uh, so again, a lot, a lot of questions to be answered. We will have a series of briefings to understand this better. And then if we need to, in the defense bill, address it, uh, obviously we need to do so sooner than later. So House Majority Whip Steve Scalise said the House is gathering more details on the spy balloon yeah. uh, and then is working to draft a resolution that will condemn the Chinese government flying the balloon over the U.S. I thought originally it was going to be a resolution condemning the Biden administration's response to it. Did that change? My understanding, I haven't talked to... You know, Majority Leader Scalise directly about it is we want to present something that is bipartisan, that this is an America issue, not a Republican or a Democrat issue. I certainly disagree with aspects of how the Biden administration has responded to this. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need to condemn uh, the Chinese Communist Party and their actions to violate our airspace with one voice. And you wrote an interesting op-ed comparing the spy balloon to when Russia launched the Sputnik uh, satellite into space in 1957. You wrote, quote, The United States has been under an espionage assault from China for years, but much of it has been behind the scenes. They didn't need to send a balloon given their rapidly expanding constellation of spy satellites, but I'm glad they did. 
It was a very visible symbol of what so many of us have been ringing the alarm bells about for years. But until last week, the magnitude and sheer scale of the Chinese operations were often cleverly hidden behind the scenes. So do you think this is a wake-up call for the American people? I hope it's a wake-up call for the American people. This was very visible. I think uh, you know, everyday Americans who don't normally dive into national security issues we're asking what the heck is going on and why can't we defend against it? Why can they do this? Uh, and to your point, just as, and the point of my op-ed, just as this was a wake-up call in 1957 about the Cold War that we were in then and that we couldn't take success in that Cold War for granted, I hope this is a wake-up call that at the end of the day, this is a far more dangerous enemy. They control our supply chains. They seek to supplant us. Uh, and this isn't about the Chinese people. This is about a dictatorial communist regime that seeks to defeat the United States. And we need a wake-up call as a society that this is all of society, all of government competition. And I would argue they have entered into a Cold War with us. We need to wake up to that fact, too. All right, Congressman Waltz, right. good to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Enjoy the State of the Union tonight. Come up next on the lead, a mounting death toll. More than 7,200 people killed by the earthquake in right. Turkey and Syria as rescuers are racing the clock to reach people buried alive. Thanks. We're live on the ground. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead in the tragedy in Turkey and Syria following the 7.8 magnitude earthquake that hit early Monday morning. Here's what we know right now. The death toll at last count has risen to 7,200 people. The first quake was followed by a destructive 7.5 magnitude aftershock nine hours later. That was just one of more than 125 other aftershocks, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. At least 6,000 buildings in southern Turkey and northern Syria have completely collapsed. Now CNN's Becky Anderson brings us up closer to the utter devastation. From underneath the destruction, a momentary sigh of relief. The search and rescue teams find a sign of life while sifting through the rubble. But seconds later, another lifeless body is found. Monday's devastating quake has left an ever-growing death toll in its thousands leaving families across Turkey and Syria without homes and without loved ones. As the snow falls, grief is being compounded with freezing conditions. Huddled around a small fire, survivors worry about friends and relatives still trapped under the rubble. Forbidden by authorities to intervene, Murat Alinak says he just wants to help recover his relatives to give them a proper send-off. We are under the snow, without a home, without anything. We can overcome this. We can fast for 40 days and still overcome this. But let us recover for the funerals. International aid has poured in from all corners of the world. France, Mexico, Germany and India are some of the countries who've pledged to step up efforts. Planes carrying supplies from Iran and Iraq also arriving in Damascus on Tuesday. As C-17 cargo planes from the UAE flew quickly to the quake-stricken area. Now 25,000 of the Turkish search and rescue crew is on the mission and more estimated 5,000 people is coming from the other country. Back in Gaziantep, survivors at this gas station are desperately trying to fill up and find safety away from the destruction. Barter's lines stretch throughout the airport, with cancellations expected for at least three days. 
and Turkey's Erdogan declaring a state of emergency for the next three months, passengers slowly resign to the fact that there may be no escape anytime soon. And Jake, likely no escape for those who are caught underneath the rubble in the building behind me here. This was until 4.15 a.m. on Monday morning here, an eight-story building. There were four flats per building, so the rescuers here estimate there were between 100 and 150 people in this building. And sadly, as we understand it, nobody has come out alive as of yet. But as with many of these rescue, search and rescue sites, where there is hope, there is heart, and where there is heart, the efforts will continue to try to ensure that they have rescued anybody left alive under the rubble. Jake. All right, Becky Anderson in Turkey for us. Thank you so much. If you're looking for ways to help the victims of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, you can go to CNN.com impact. Coming up, new action taken against more Memphis police officers after the beating death of Tyree Nichols. Stay with us. In our national lead, seven more Memphis police officers are facing discipline for their actions in the brutal beating of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols, which ultimately, of course, led to his death. Officials say the actions are not criminal in nature. This comes as five officers are facing second-degree murder charges for the assault. CNN's Nick Valencia is live in Memphis, Tennessee for us. And Nick, the city council where you are met today to discuss nearly a dozen police reform proposals. What happened? Well, the most significant news, Jake, was those officers, that they will be disciplined, the seven additional officers, bringing the total to at least 13 who either already have faced discipline and been terminated or will face disciplinary actions. This is separate from what the TBI is doing in their criminal investigation. The city council meeting was emotional and at times tense. Uh, the police chief was particularly grilled by members of the city council, and in one tense exchange, uh, it was alleged that she was like, where's Waldo in the days after this incident was made public? Uh, she was asked whether or not what happened to Nichols was a culture problem or a training problem. This is what she had to say. Culture is not something that changes overnight. You know, there is a saying in law enforcement that uh, culture eats policy for lunch. We don't want to just have good policies because policies can be navigated around. We want to ensure that we have the right people in place to ensure our culture is evolving and is changing to the philosophy that we're talking about, the, the reforming and the reimagining what policing looks like in our community. So having the right people in the right place at the right time is critically important. There are more than a dozen public safety reforms on the agenda, including support for the George Floyd, uh, George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. It was a well-attended city council meeting, Jake, with those that attended being very clear that they want the end to plain clothes and unmarked cars uh, being used in traffic stops, and they want more transparency when it comes to the data involving those traffic stops to know why people are pulled over and what happens to them afterwards. We're expecting a long line when it comes to public comment, which is expected to get underway here any moment. Jake? Uh, Nick, a new lawsuit claims that the five officers specifically charged for Nichols' death allegedly assaulted a different man just three days before. Tell us about that. 
That's right. 22-year-old Monterius Harris, who is a U.S. Navy veteran, claims that three days prior to Nichols' stop, he was assaulted by the Scorpion unit. He says the same five officers that were charged with second-degree murder in the beating of Nichols contributed to his assault. He claims in the lawsuit that the police report was falsified, making no mention that he was beaten during his arrest. Uh, he is suing the city of Memphis as well as the police department. Jake, we reached out to the city of uh, Memphis as well as the police department and the attorneys for these officers have not gotten a comment back, comment back, but the police department says that they do not comment on ongoing litigation. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Memphis, Tennessee. And I want to bring in right now Democratic Congresswoman uh, Cori Bush from Missouri, along with her guest for tonight's State of the Union address, uh, State of the Union address, Michael Brown Sr., uh, whose 18-year-old son was shot and killed by police in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. Thanks uh, to both of you for being here. Uh, Congresswoman, let me, let me start with you. Uh, it seems likely... Um, that President Biden will talk about policing reform in some capacity uh, this evening. What do you want him to say? You know, that this is more than just about accountability. You know, there has to be actual change that people can feel, and you can feel it because people's lives are saved. So what we, you know, can we st can we bring to the table legislation um, that we have? We have Helping Families Heal Act, which would make sure that there is money going into our schools and um, into to funding uh, mental health agencies uh, that are making sure that they're dealing with the trauma that so many youth are facing, um, youth and adults are facing after police violence. But we also have the, the People's Response Act, where we can send in mental health professionals when there is a 911 call for a mental health crisis. We can send in someone who is an expert on substance use issues when there is a substance use crisis. Um, when there's an issue with our uh, unhoused community members, send in someone who does that work. Send in those experts instead of sending in those who are not qualified or trained to be able to deal in those situations. Because what it does is it frees them up to work in the areas where they have a specialty, where they are the experts. Um, but also, um, what about civilian traffic enforcement, 911 diversion programs? You know, those are the things that we can see, and we can see that now. You're talking about a reimagining of how we police in this country. Yeah, which well. Probably a lot of police would like that. They don't want to focus on mental health issues. They don't have the expertise. Right, exactly, exactly. I want to I redefine it. I want to redefine public safety into a public health issue. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Brown, first of all, how are you doing? Every day is still different. Uh, Still working on my foundation, still doing uh, a lot of uh, community work, uh, doing things out in our community and moving around, still trying to help uh, the families all around the nation that's sadly losing their love. So you heard the police chief from Memphis there saying something about you can make as many policy changes as you want, but you have to change the culture. She said, she quoted the old saying, uh, culture eats policy for lunch, meaning it doesn't matter what you tell people what to do, you have to change how they think and how they act, uh, as we saw with, uh, with Tyree. Right. Um, how does that, how do, you, how do you change policing so that communities are still being protected and still being safe, but there are fewer Tyrees out there? Well, you gotta, uh, we definitely gotta hit it from the inner core first. You know, uh, we've been tiptoeing around this for a long time, and this is the reason why we steady having these problems. You know, so, uh, like I say, I was there uh, for the memorial uh, this weekend for Tyree, but yeah, we got a whole lot of work to do. We we we, it's too much talking and no action. So yeah. we got to figure out what that action gonna be. Some of your 
um, work in this effort, in this area, is going to be challenged by the fact that Republicans now control the House, and there are a lot of skeptics of policing reform and criminal justice reform. Uh, the new chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, Jim Jordan, says he's not sure that there's any policing reform uh, that could have stopped what happened uh, to Tyree Nichols. Take a listen. I don't know that there's any law that can stop that evil that we saw that is just, I mean, just difficult to watch. I don't think these five guys represent the vast, vast majority of law enforcement. But I don't know that there's anything you can do to stop the kind of evil we saw in that video. What do you make of that? So I also remember there um, in an interview, he added to that, um, that no amount of training, something, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but no amount of training um, could have could have helped that. And so I'm going to say, yes, I agree to that, that that is not a training issue. The training that is received is something that uh, allows black people to be killed you know, um, disproportionately in this country. So putting more money there is not, it, that's not how we fix this problem. And, and the reason, one reason why I go back to that is because I remember when Philando Castile was, was murdered, uh, when he was killed, uh, more money, the governor said, we're going to put more money, it was something like $12 million or something like that. We're going to put more money into training. Well, then, you know, George Floyd is, is dead. Um, so is that training, you know, what does what does that look like? So what I'm saying is, uh, you know, when when our chairman, because I am on that committee, I'm on the Judiciary Committee, uh, whether it's whether we're talking about training, whether we're talking about uh, uh, what accountability looks like, if we don't go and 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 deal with who are the rank and file and who are not, because there there are people who are sitting in these seats. And I've talked to police officers who have said, you know, we can't move up. You know, they block us from moving up, especially black and brown officers. We can't we can't move up. We're, we're the ones out doing this work, trying to really bring community policing into the communities and we're blocked or mm-hmm. they won't allow us to move into positions where we can actually make change. Well, that hurts our communities. But I will say this, just having black and brown officers also don't make us safe. Well, as having we saw more, with Tyree Nichols. Absolutely. Right? And having more officers don't keep us safe. We invest in our social safety net. We invest in people. We invest in job programs. We invest in education. We invest in, 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 in health care. We invest in us. That's how we make us safe. So, um, Mr. Brown, uh, Tyree Nichols' parents were, are going to be here tonight at the State of the Union, uh, guests of the First Lady. Um, we just learned seven additional officers are going to be disciplined. Are you satisfied so far with how Memphis has reacted in terms of the accountability since Tyree Nichols died? Well, I think that uh, they showing they showing what should be happening on both sides of the badge. You know, um, these this this the first in history I've ever seen black officers get fired and convicted this quick. You know, so I think that we need to. Uh, we need to overall look at this situation and, and, and see what we don't have to see what the problem is. The problem is right there in our face. So we are uh, we do need better training on both ends. And, uh, yeah, it, it's just a sad situation. Very sad. Michael Brown, Sr., it's always good to see you. Congresswoman right. Bush, good to see Thank you. you. Thank you so much Thank you. Uh, for joining us. Uh, near collisions on runways, delays, cancellations, lost bags. The conversation today to address major issues in the airline industry. That's next. Back now with more in our national lead. Thousands of flights have been canceled or delayed over the holidays. Flights grounded nationwide after an outdated safety system failure. Two near collisions at two different airports. It's been a a rather bumpy ride, to say the least, over the past few months for U.S. airlines and for the Federal Aviation Administration. And now lawmakers here on Capitol Hill want to know just what is being done about all this. Here's CNN's Pete Muntean. 
The newest case of a near collision on the runway comes as aviation officials are facing tough questions from Congress. Investigators say before dawn Saturday, a FedEx Boeing 767 was about to land at Austin's International Airport as a Southwest Airlines 737 was told to take off from the same runway. The National Transportation Safety Board now tells CNN the FedEx crew aborted their landing plans unprompted and started to climb, averting disaster. FedEx is on the go. They saved, uh, in my view, 128 people from a, a potential catastrophe. NTSB Chair Jennifer Homendy says the two planes came within 100 feet of colliding in thick fog. It comes three weeks after another near collision at JFK, where a Delta Airlines flight abruptly stopped its takeoff as an American Airlines flight taxied across the runway in front of it. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. The NTSB now says in both incidents, cockpit voice recorders timed out after two hours and not 25 like the agency has recommended, leaving investigators without key clues. The ability to have accident data from cockpit audio as well as image recorders is critical. Issues in the air are being met with issues on the ground. From last month's FAA computer system failure that paralyzed airports to Southwest's holiday travel meltdown that canceled more than 16,000 flights. The operating environment is much more difficult. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby predicts a rough year for aviation and says his airline is trying to control what it can. Brand new graduates from United's Industry First Flight School are now headed to new jobs on their way to shore up pilot shortages at the airlines. The last generation of older pilots is starting to leave. Industry figures say more people now work at major airlines than before the pandemic. But the pressure is on to keep their safety record clean. It takes a lot of work to keep it that way, and we need to make sure that we continue advancing as we see more and more demand, more and more complexity, more and more technology coming into the national airspace. Aviation experts say the two near collisions on the runway are freak incidents on their own, but together they could hint that the aviation system right now is fragile, especially with so many new workers joining the industry. Today's hearing officially kicks off the process of Congress setting the FAA's budget, a practice these latest headlines have made more interesting than ever. Jake. I'll bet. Pete Montine, thanks so much for that update. Appreciate it. Embattled Republican Congressman George Santos has some unexpected guests at tonight's State of the Union address. Who are they? We'll tell you ahead. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, will he do it? In just a few hours, LeBron James could become the highest scoring NBA player of all time. Plus, the death toll from that earthquake in Turkey and Syria reaching a tragic 7,200 people. And the death toll is only expected to rise as crews dig through the wreckage. CNN just reached one of the hardest hit areas. Building over there that seems to have basically split and fallen in two. And here, excavators and bare hands in turn being used to try and get to anybody who might still be alive. And leading this hour, in just a few hours, President Biden will deliver his second State of the Union address, this time before a divided Congress. Earlier today, I attended lunch with President Biden and some other TV news anchors. It was off the record, but I can tell you that the president did seem upbeat and eager to convey his optimism about the nation and 
He hopes that others will join him in that optimism. Tonight's address is being viewed by many observers as a test run for Biden's messaging for a potential second term. CNN's Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. Manu, walk us through what we're going to see unfold here in the next few hours. Yeah, we expect around 8.30 Eastern time. That's when the House will gavel into session, when Kevin McCarthy will take the gavel and call the House into order before the senators come over there in the formal procession of all of the president's guests. And then the president himself making an address to the nation in the 9 p.m. Eastern hour, an address that is expected to run roughly an hour or so, where he will lay out his accomplishments, things that he is trying to sell to the American public at a time when voters are showing that they do not believe the president has done enough. He will try to reset that narrative and also call on to lay out things that he believes can be done in the next two years in this divided Congress, as well as take aim at Republicans to call for passage on measures that have virtually no chance of passing in this Republican-controlled House. But there are questions about how far he will go and how much he will go in demanding Congress move to, say, avert a debt default, one of the big issues that is outstanding this Congress, one in which the House Republicans and the White House must resolve their differences to avoid a potential cataclysmic event to the U.S. economy, and as well as talking about all the issues surrounding the global security around the world, the Chinese spy balloon, the president expected to address the threat from China as well. So a lot of questions about the president's tone as House Republicans plan to showcase what they believe is a reasonable opposition, sit there, listen to the president, act respectfully as Republicans are planning to battle back on things that they believe simply have no chance of passing this Congress, James. Yeah, act Respectfully is an interesting point there because House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's folks are, are, are leaking and telling reporters that McCarthy gave a warning to House Republicans to behave during the speech. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, behind closed doors the House, in the House Republican conference meeting, he said, be aware. Be aware that there are cameras that will be on you. There will be a hot mic that can pick up your conversation, that the cameras can actually pick up what you're looking at on your phone, and that this will be projected to the nation. McCarthy is trying to showcase a different type of Republican Party, something that they did not see in the beginning of this Congress when it went to 15 ballots to elect the Speaker of the House. Instead, he wants to show a different type of opposition. And he told me earlier today that he does not plan to do what Nancy Pelosi did back in uh, the Trump era when she, stri- when she ripped up Donald Trump's speech in one of his State of the Union addresses. He said, I will not be doing that. It will not be a political ploy, but we'll see how the Republicans respond and if the Republican members on the hard right listen to those requests. Yeah. Right. He'll just vote against counting electoral votes from Arizona and Pennsylvania, but not ripping up a speech. Got it. Madaraju inside the Capitol building. Thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel, Dana Bash and Sungman Kim. So um, obviously a big difference between this State of the Union and last mm-hmm. uh, is that Speaker McCarthy, a Republican, is mm-hmm. going to be behind uh, Biden's shoulder. You were just in a, in a briefing with McCarthy. I'm not sure what was on the record or off, but what can you tell us? Well, it's unlike that. Uh Not unlike the president who was off the record so that he could speak uh, candidly. Uh, But generally speaking, what he wanted to convey was the gist of what we just heard from Manu, that despite what we have seen over the past two years, despite what we we saw at the beginning of this year, he wants to convey uh, a sense of respect and respectfulness for the presidency and for this particular president, for President Biden. Uh, He was talking to his conference about how he... They should remember that they're on camera. Well, he's going to have the biggest, brightest camera (laughs) on him because he's going to be right behind the president. Uh, So that is what he is trying to uh, to convey. And it will be what he will be uh, doing tonight with his body language. Also, what he is saying privately. Can he actually send that message to a Republican caucus, given the fact that Speaker McCarthy was out there? lying about Donald Trump having won the 2020 election, signing on to that crazy lawsuit, 
voting against counting the electoral votes from Arizona and Pennsylvania? I mean, is this really a guy to be talking about respecting the presidency? Well, right. And that's the challenge. And I also think, too, that Kevin McCarthy, as Speaker of the House, is not someone who's going to have much control of his conference. So while we're all watching Speaker McCarthy up uh, behind the president, we're also going to be watching how House Republicans in the chamber behave. I mean, you already have Marjorie Taylor Greene walking around with a balloon saying she wants to bring the balloon into the State of the Union address. Um, And considering just all of the... Wait, what's this? She has a balloon? She, she posted a video on Twitter and she's walking around with a big white balloon as, as calling it her State of the Union guest. Obviously a reference to the Chinese surveillance balloon that uh, President Biden has come under a lot of criticism Is she for. actually going to try to bring a balloon? Into I think there are house rules against that, but that is kind of the, the, the stunt that she's pulling this afternoon. So um, in terms of, uh, you know, you have McCarthy's treatment of the presidency, what he'll do up there tonight, but also what House Republicans who are now in the majority, who are now in the governing majority, do in terms of their behavior towards Biden. And I think that's why anticipating some of that behavior, why Speaker McCarthy told his conference, you know, maybe back off, be on your best behavior tonight. Might be a little late is my only point. But (laughs) let's talk about what uh, President Biden's going to say tonight. One advisor told CNN, quote, there isn't some new Joe Biden. He is who he is, and his consistency is nothing if not consistent. Um, (laughs) So... It's definitely not new. Uh, Do you think that this is going to be new in any way, uh, considering who he is and how familiar we all are with him at this point? No. When it comes to his agenda, no. Uh, What he is clearly going to try to do is to hit home uh, and let sort of penetrate into the public's consciousness the things that he has done, and they don't give him any credit for. According to recent polls, it's kind of mind-blowing that people don't realize how much they have done in a bipartisan way and also just uh, right, when even it was if just you Democrats. don't like it, he, they did they it. Accomplished absolutely, it. Right. absolutely. So re- reiterating some of that. But of course, by definition, what we were talking about, it is going to be different uh, because he's going to have to acknowledge that there is at least in part divided government and he can't it was hard for him to push anything through with Democratic control before because the margins were so thin. It's even harder now. Although we're told that President Biden is going to be pushing what his aides are calling a unity agenda, right. uh, focusing on things that, that there can be bipartisan support right. for, ending cancer, supporting veterans, tackling the mental health crisis, combating the opioid epidemic. Um, I guess a question I would have would be, uh, it's easy to want to be bipartisan if you're in the minority party and this is the only way you can get a victory. Right. But, but what if you're in the majority party? Like, is there going to be the same appetite? Well, I think when he points out all those issues, and obviously, you know, First Lady Jill Biden's guests will highlight those issues as well with the people that she's bringing to the address. But I think, you know, those are good, you know, areas of bipartisanship, you know, applause points for the president's address. But Republicans are really going to be focusing on how um, how the president approaches them. They feel like because the White House did or Democrats did lose at least the House in the midterm elections, that he should be coming to them with some sort of a conciliatory, more compromising attitude, not just on these issues such as mental health and veterans, which we should all agree on, but on issues like the debt limit and the economy. And the White House doesn't feel that way. They don't feel like they got the shellacking that perhaps President Obama did in his first midterms. They are feeling pretty good, despite all the recent polling uh, to the contrary about what they've done, and especially after the midterm results. So I think that those two different attitudes on display tonight will will be clashing to some extent and really interesting to watch. All right, Sungman and Dana, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, You can watch uh, CNN's uh, coverage uh, this evening starting at 8 p.m. Coming up next, we cannot 
come to the phone right now. Moments ago, the Pentagon announced the Chinese government is sending calls to voicemail. And when email, snail mail, and social media just won't do, the group headed here by bus today to deliver a message about a certain Republican congressman who is known as the lying congressman, as Leslie Jones says, what do you have to do to be known as the lying congressman? That's George Santos, and that's next. And we're back with our world lead moments ago. The Pentagon announced that the Chinese government has refused to speak with the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. Pentagon officials say the Defense Department submitted a request for a call between Austin and China's Minister of National Defense right after the U.S. downed that Chinese spy balloon, but the Chinese government has declined. Today, the U.S. Navy released these new images of parts of the Chinese spy balloon that have been fished out of the Atlantic. CNN's Will Ripley joins me now live. Will, the Chinese government, in addition to not taking a call from the Secretary of Defense here, also is making a rather bold demand about these balloon remnants. Yeah, they were asked if, you know, they basically if it would be returned, uh, if they wanted the balloon returned. And and the answer that the Chinese gave was this balloon belongs to China. This balloon does not belong to the United States, a nation that had hovered over for seven days, took uh, potential imagery of highly sensitive missile silos in Montana and other places and unsettled a whole lot of Americans, along with many politicians in Washington who looked up in the skies and for the first time for many got a real taste of what it feels like to be under the watchful eye of Chinese surveillance. Of course, hundreds of Chinese spy satellites are taking lots of pictures of the U.S. all the time and vice versa. The U.S. spies on China as well. But this was a very vivid example that came at a very unusual time right before what was supposed to be uh, a diplomatic meeting to to ease tensions. And yet now this balloon has basically resulted in the exact opposite. And Will, the Pentagon now says similar surveillance balloons uh, have have currently been tracked uh, over parts of the U.S. in 2019. We should note where you are, Taiwan, it's is no stranger to Chinese spy balloons fly, flying over its territory. We actually just got a piece of video in from New Year's Eve. It was a video that was hovering over Taiwan. We didn't know about it at the time. The the government didn't release it. But the Taiwanese experts I'm speaking with are very grateful to the United States for identifying this balloon because they had a lot of questions about where these balloons were coming from. They suspected China, but they don't have the kind of intelligence capability that the United States have. And certainly a lot of countries might feel emboldened now to shoot these things down, given that they have, you know, three coach buses worth of potential surveillance apparatus on the bottom, a balloon that's 200 feet high, hovering at high altitude. This is certainly unlike any weather balloon that the rest of the world has ever seen, although China is still insisting that that's what it is. They even fired the head of their weather service, Jake, but the Defense Department not talking. All right, Will Ripley in Taipei, thank you so much. Let's bring in Republican Congressman Mike McCall of Texas. He's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Mr. Chairman, let me ask you, I don't know how to characterize the response that the Chinese government is is currently making. They're refusing to take a call from our Secretary of Defense here in the U.S. They're demanding that their spy balloon debris be returned to them. That's like a peeping Tom demanding that the that the you know the spy t- uh, the microscope or the telescope you know be returned to him. It's it almost seems childish. Right. That's you know? very comical. I mean, a, a spy balloon at this altitude, as if we wouldn't see this. You could see it with the naked eye. Very much a, a provocative act done by communist China at a time I find interesting because the Secretary of State, I met with him to what should he bring up with Chairman Xi? It was going to happen a week later, and now that's canceled because of this 
provocative act. I think uh, I think it was a test. I think they were testing this administration. How are they going to respond to this? They knew we would see it. Uh, they're calling it a what weather balloon. Right. But in fact, why would they want it back so desperately? We're not going to give it back to them, and we're going to study the. Um, you know, what what's, was on that balloon? Even if it's garbage, we wouldn't give it back to them, right? <laughs> I mean, even if there's nothing s- usable. Um, let me ask you, we know uh, the Pentagon says at least three Chinese spy balloons drifted over the U.S. Mm-hmm. when Trump was in office, although apparently they didn't know that until the Biden administration. CNN, CNN obtained a U.S. military intelligence report from April last year that documents one incident in 2019 mm-hmm. uh, when the balloon, quote, drifted past Hawaii and across Florida. Um, I, I guess the first question I have is, How was the Pentagon or whomever able to go back and figure out that during the Trump administration, these three balloons happened? Do you you have any idea? Well, I'll have a classified briefing. I'm going to bring up these issues. I do think, from what I understand, that this probably had happened before. Uh, And for whatever reason, when I talk to the higher level officials, you know, like the National Security Advisor, for instance, it was not communicated properly, but we had that and the intelligence community. So that, that's a whole another issue. However, it was never flown at this altitude that was visible to the naked eye and by you know commercial aircraft. That's what draw, drew so much attention. And I, you know, my question also is why wasn't this shot down the, 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 at the very beginning when it hit U.S. airspace uh, over Alaska, the Aleutian Islands, why wasn't it taken down? Because it was in violation of, of national international law. Well, what the Pentagon says is that they didn't want to risk anybody getting hurt. I mean, there are more than 8,000 people that live in the Aleutian Islands, uh, Mm -hmm. so I can understand that. Look, I don't think there's any easy answer. I certainly understand the sentiment, we should have shot it down earlier, but then my question always is, when? When was the right time to do it when, you know, you could guarantee no American or Canadian was going to be hurt? Well, in that case, when it's over the Pacific Ocean and not wait till it's over the Atlantic, uh, I don't know whether it was transmitting in real time back to the mothership in Beijing. Uh, I'll find that out in my classified briefing. If that was, if that was jammed, uh, I'd feel a little better about all this. But if all that information's going back, remember, lower altitude can capture more intelligence as well, and and so that remains to be an issue. But you know, overall, it's what what does this mean for the United States? It certainly deteriorates our already bad relationship with China, and you have to ask yourself a question: Why would Chairman Xi want to do this? Yeah, particularly at this at this moment in time when Secretary Blinken was going over to try to, you know, help relations between the two countries. Do you think it's definite that Chairman Xi knew about this? I mean, is it possible that he didn't? Uh, I mean, how the Chinese government works is still fairly opaque. Is it possible that somebody in charge of spying or their version of the Pentagon just decided to do this and not tell Chairman Xi? I've heard that theory, but my, my view is that nothing happens within the PLA, their military, without Chairman Xi knowing about it. Uh, And in fact, he may have directed this. We just don't know. So obviously the Biden administration, as any administration would in its place, is trying to spin this like, oh, it's, you know, now we got all this information. We were able to study them. Now we have the debris, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Moving the politics out of it and how you disagree with how the Biden administration handled it, is this ultimately embarrassing for China? Did President Xi embarrass himself with this? Or is it actually like a demonstration of strength, do you think? Depends on the point of view. I think China views it as weakness, uh, that we allowed this uh, Our weakness, U.S. weakness. The United yeah. States. And that's what he was testing. We allowed it to traverse across the country. 
I think the administration's going to have their spin on this. And I, I do applaud them for shooting it down. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the American people is, is a true judge here. How do they view it? I think they view it as, I mean, I, how could, I mean, it's a spy balloon so low in altitude, you can see it with the naked eye. And we allow it to go all the way across the country, taking pictures of very, you know, the national security assets throughout the country. It just, I think overall, it looks weak yeah. to me. Um, what do you want to hear from President Biden on the matter, on the subject of foreign affairs today? I mean, I know that's probably like a 50,000 page book that you could write right now. But just like what are some of the subjects you want to hear him talk about the spy balloon? Do you want to hear him talk about supporting Ukraine, which I know is important to you? I think, uh, yeah, Ukraine's important. Uh, I'd like for him to hear. I know one section of the speech is going to be about what can we do uh, bipartisan to get things through Congress. I do think China, particularly after this spy balloon, uh, galvanizes, reinforces the American people's support uh, to do something about it. And so I do think, particularly with the uh, the vote on the Select Committee on China, that you can we can really pass bills, legislation that are that are geared towards China's aggression. In a bipartisan manner, I met with my ranking member last night, Greg Meeks. Uh, I think there's an appetite for that now. And certainly the spy balloon just reinforced and galvanized that support in the Congress. Yeah, and I understand the chairman of the Select Committee on China, Congressman Gallagher, is happy with who the Democrats picked, Raj Krishnamurthy, a Democrat Mm -hmm. from Illinois, also a serious legislator. Good to see you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much. Republican Congressman Mike McCall, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee from Texas. Coming up to the center, the epicenter of the tragedy, where it's only a matter of time before rescue operations turn to recovery missions after Monday's deadly earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Stay with us. In our world lead, it's a race against the clock amid utter devastation. The death toll is now more than 7,700 people across Turkey and Syria killed after Monday's 7.8 magnitude earthquake. Hospitals in war-scarred Aleppo are, quote, absolutely overloaded, according to aid workers on the ground. At a clinic just north of Aleppo, a newborn girl is being treated after she was pulled from the rubble. Rescuers say the baby's umbilical cord was still attached to her mother, who did not make it. The baby girl is now the sole survivor in her family. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh brings us now closer to the epicenter in southern Turkey, and we want to warn viewers these images are rather disturbing. You can still almost feel the enormity of the tremors here. This is Kakmaran Marash, closest to the epicenter. One older neighbourhood shredded, its family warmth huddling on the street. Dolcek's father is trapped under the rubble here. Only his feet protrude. They can't get him out, but can cover his toes. It would be really nice, he says, if the government had come by. Turan retrieved his eight-year-old daughter, wife and daughter-in-law. Pray you never stand over so much of your life. Their final dignity from a carpet. Pushed down, and there are glimmers of hope. These rescuers have spotted a 12-year-old, Mustafa, in the rubble and have to dig down to him. Further along, Ali helped them find his 65-year-old mother. She's in her bed down there, he says. We'll get her out soon. There is not much sign of government here, perhaps as the scale of this is all too massive.
Dusk makes the dust and the immense bulk of the mess harder still. The cold, just an insult in the days of emptiness that lie ahead. And the news from the rubble is as often as bad as it is good. A body found here, carried out, and laid next to this man's nine-year-old daughter, Beren. The black here hiding the intimate agonies buried in it. The stories with the wrong ending. But suddenly, there is a call for quiet, hush. They think they hear a voice. A pause, and then the best noise, joy. Rescuers think they might have found six people alive, but there are hours more ahead of checking. But nothing really goes to plan here, even the joy seems random. Where Ali's mother is being rescued, two young people are unexpectedly found and pulled out. A 16-year-old girl, apparently still alive. Extraordinary moment of joy. The kind of thing that really all of Turkey is desperately hoping and waiting for. But as the temperatures drop and time goes by, they will become harder to come by. But extraordinary to see somebody pulled so healthily straight out of this building. Abdullah seems unscathed, almost untouched by the tremors that altered everything else he emerges into. Now, Jake, the dark here and the cold is certainly slowing rescue operations. I should say, uh, outside of what you saw in that report, we've seen about four individuals pulled from the wreckage over the last hours or so. And another moment of optimism here. It's always hard to tell what that's based around evidentially. But some locals here say that they have heard voices from inside, deep inside this large piece of rubble behind me. In fact, one man saying a thermal camera may have seen over a dozen people inside, other figures suggesting six, possibly three. But the clock is ticking very hard and fast here. The cold has set in. People are going to find it increasingly hard to find survivors as we head into tomorrow and the day after. But still startling scenes here, not just of the utter remarkable destruction. It boggles, frankly, your mind to see what's been done to a neighbourhood here so close to the epicentre, but also, too, as the hours still go by, the mere fact that people are being brought out alive. As you saw at the end of that report, uh, Abdullah seemingly untouched by his time uh, stuck in the rubble, Jake. All right, Nick Payton Walsh in Turkey with that incredible report. Thank you so much. Uh, let's bring in Avril Benoit. She's the executive director of Doctors Without Borders. Avril, good to see you again. As the clock continues to tick, the weather gets colder. What is the most urgent need on the ground right now? Well, I would say quite obviously it's the search and rescue operation. Uh, the ideal window is to be able to, to bring people out within 48 hours. It's highly risky and the likelihood of finding people alive diminishes. And then from there, you've got people with catastrophic injuries. Uh, we've seen time and again with earthquakes uh, that that is not only a need for trauma care, uh, but then it's infection control, it's uh, management of their post-operative care, rehabilitation, reconstruction of the hospitals themselves. 
And meanwhile, you've got babies being born. Uh, even our own team, we run a, a burns unit in the city of Atma, and uh, we redeployed uh, from that medical team to the surgical hospitals. But there was also a maternity ward where uh, we had to evacuate all the, the mothers, uh, the newborns, and sometimes you're evacuating to facilities, other hospital structures that frankly don't necessarily have the integrity uh, structurally that you would want, ideally. So this is uh, all around catastrophic. It's going to be a major lift for the entire uh, aid community that's already on the ground, like Doctors Without Borders and all the others that uh, will be mobilizing in the days ahead. And Doctors Without Borders is obviously already familiar with uh, what's going on in Syria after a decade of, of brutal civil war in that country. You have people in northwestern Syria right now. How difficult is it for your team to get doctors and supplies there? Incredibly difficult. So we have around 500 staff uh, already working in this region of Syria that's affected by the earthquakes. And they themselves have... Uh, family members that they've lost. We we lost one of our colleagues uh, in the rubble in his home uh, at the time of the earthquake uh, who died. And so they are themselves shattered seeing what their community is experiencing with with all the, the description that you just saw there. Um, so for us, the, the key priority is to make sure that uh, we can keep the supply routes open because the way to bring in supplies through the one UN official uh, route, there's one road from Turkey into that region of Syria that is approved. We've got to make sure that that's open for all the supplies to be able to come in. And, uh, and then uh, obviously it's to maintain a, a level of security for the, the medical teams to be able to work, to do the distributions. Obviously right now in the hours ahead, it's uh, shelter, it's blankets, it's food, all the essentials in addition to uh, medical supplies, which we've been distributing around uh, to roughly 23 medical facilities in the zone. All right, Avril Benoit with Doctors Without Borders, a group that could sure use your financial support if you can afford to do so. Thank you so much, Avril. Good to see you again, as always. Uh, for other ways to help, you can head to CNN.com impact. There's a list of resources there. Coming up from Capitol Hill, the group headed here by the busload with a strong message for a certain Republican congressman and any Republican leader who might be willing to listen. Stay with us. And our worldly time is running out for the tens of thousands of Afghan refugees who fled their country following the chaotic U.S. military withdrawal in August 2021. You might recall the Afghan Adjustment Act, which we've reported on many times, that would give these evacuees who are currently living in the United States a pathway to lawful permanent residency before their humanitarian parole expires this summer, just a few months. You might also recall that that act was left out of the most recent spending bill, the omnibus spending bill, despite a push from some two dozen former U.S. military leaders. Democratic Congressman Scott Peters of California is with me, along with his special guest for tonight's State of the Union address, Rahmat Mokhtar, a former Afghan interpreter who lives in the U.S. on a special immigrant visa. We should point out what you're hearing is a whole bunch of motorcades and stuff going on right now because people, everybody's getting uh, prepared uh, for the State of the Union address, but it's not an emergency. It's just people tying up traffic. Uh, but uh, Congressman Peters, let me start with you. Uh, you're an original co-sponsor of the Afghan Adjustment Act. I know that you represent a community with a lot of American veterans for whom this is an incredibly important issue. Uh, people, uh, Afghan interpreters like, like Mokhtar, risk their lives in right. some some cases, sacrifice their lives for the American people. How are you going to convince 
Republicans to pass it in the House. Jake, this is a normal thing we do after conflicts. We've, we've done adjustment acts like this um, after Vietnam, after the Bay of Pigs. The people who fought side by side with, with our Marines, for instance, like Ramat did, yeah. uh, because um, part of our promise is that if you take care of us, we'll take care of you. So I just want to remind those folks of, of, um, of that promise, of keeping that promise as the, as, the, as the United States tradition. And it's important not just for our veterans, not just for our allies in, in Afghanistan, but for the principle that we stand by our promises, that's going to make sure that our allies can count on us going forward when we ask them to, to fight with us next time. Yeah, it's been made, the argument's been made. It's a national security issue for the next war. Right. Hopefully there won't be one, but we live in the real world, and there probably will. It's important for allies to know that we'll be there. Uh, Rahmat, uh, if you could look at the camera right now and talk to any member of Congress who's on the fence... I don't know if I want to support this. What if some of these people end up being not great people, et cetera? What's your message to them? Well, I mes- my message to them is that, first of all, uh, you know, uh, come on, and tonight I will be in the State of Union. Come talk to me. And, and I have a lot to share with you. And, uh, you know, uh, Afghans who fought the war and risked their life, and uh, the war has been for 20 years, and then the solution or the aftermath is not that easy. We need more. We need more support. The Congress should act, and the Afghan Adjustment Act is going to be the solution for the situation we have here. Uh, Afghans living here in limbo. Afghans, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, in a survival mode. They are looking for a solution to get evacuated and then survive. You know, uh, uh, there is a lot to uh, share with the Congress and. Uh, you know, they need to hear from us and they should support us. Uh, the, the war has been for 20 years. And then, you know, the aftermath and the cost of war is huge. And, and uh, Congressman, I remember from covering this a few months ago, I mean, the problem wasn't necessarily House Republicans. We had Congressman Michael Waltz on here. He's been supportive. Congressman Mike McCall, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, he's been supportive. The problem was in the Senate. Right. It was Republicans in the Senate. Specifically, I believe, wasn't it Chuck Grassley, the, Senate, the judiciary, the ranking Republican on judiciary? Yeah, I know the, the complaint, and I don't think it's legitimate, is about vetting. So you just have to know that for Ramat to join the Marines first, he was vetted. He was vetted when he left Afghanistan. He was, he was vetted while he was um, in the United States, before he was a citizen. They checked up on him every month. This would add a refugee-level vetting at the end of that so that we, we know that a Ramat is, is, is going to not be a threat. But, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic, too, that, you know, you got someone who fought side by side with the Marines, risked his own life. That's a pretty good admission test for who you want to be an American. So uh, I think that we just have to remind um, folks who are skeptical. There's a lot of vetting in this. This has been um, an American tradition. This is the American promise. Uh, let's, let's come together and keep that promise. Are, are you, do you need this to pass in order to stay, or you're, you're okay? No, I am a citizen you're now. You're a citizen. Uh, I'm so a citizen now. Tell me about other individuals, other Afghans you know, who need this to pass. You don't have to give us any names or IDs, but like, what are their, how, how afraid are they that they're going to, that they're not, they don't know what to do if they have to, if their humanitarian visas end, end and they have to leave the United States? Do they, they don't, do they have to go back to Afghanistan necessarily? Well, thanks, Jake, for, for the great question. So there's thousands of Afghans here living in Lembo with no no, fit, no situation. 70,000. 70,000. Uh, 70, so, yeah, you're sure I, I can't give the name an idea of the right, 70,000. Right, right, right. It's a huge population. But I know you and know then, some it, of them. Uh, I know a lot of them, and I work with them directly, and uh, we have uh, uh, seen them day to day. And, uh, you know, part of my job is to help them to navigate the settlement here. But uh, there are 
right now living in limbo with with ambiguity they cannot plan for the for the next month or the next year or so and then they cannot uh, also benefit from some of the uh, you know uh, programs that they may plan for themselves like attending a university or things like that because they're living in limbo here they don't know what will happen yeah, next they can't uh, get a job necessarily because they might not be here they maybe can't can't get the least at least a house or a room even how is your family you still have family in afghanistan right i do i do have families uh in afghanistan internally displaced and and also migrated to neighboring countries uh after the withdrawal uh i have been impacted and my family has been impacted so they're displaced and they're all over uh it's uh it's a tough uh situation but uh, you know Passing this uh, Afghan, Afghan Adjustment Act also will give hope for those uh, who left behind, who, who need to get to the safety, you need, who need to get to here. So right. We're going to keep telling your story and pushing for this because it's the only right thing to do. Rahman, thank, thank you. you so much. And thank you for what you thank did you. helping you the Marines in Helmand Province. I know that was mm-hmm. brutal. And, Congressman, thanks for what you're doing here. Really thank appreciate you, it. Thank you. Coming up, the well-deserved hype right now around the 13th-ranked team in the NBA's Western Conference. We're going to go live to L.A.'s Crypto.com arena. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Mr. Santos's constituents go to Washington. Dozens of residents from embattled Republican Congressman George Santos's New York district have taken a bus to the nation's capital to demand that he resign. I took off from work to come, took a personal day to go to Washington and ask Speaker McCarthy to hold Mr. Santos accountable. It is pretty embarrassing, the daily barrage of just all these lies. I mean, who who is representing us? I feel like this is a, some kind of storybook character that's that's scamming us and laughing because we're being scammed. I happen to be a Republican, and that's why I'm really disappointed in the Republicans, especially McCarthy, who stands by this guy literally and figuratively. Let's bring in CNN's Eva McCann. Eva, how is Congressman Santos responding to this? Yeah, so Jake, I was up there where you are today with the residents as they were trying to get some answers from Congressman Santos. He wouldn't come out and speak with him, though it seemed like he was in his office at the time. Earlier today, he suggested he would, but he later told CNN he would correspond with them in writing and sort of seemed to make light of the number of signatures on the petition that they delivered to his office. Take a listen. I look forward to welcoming them and having a thoughtful discussion with them. At what point does this become a distraction? Of course. And why would I not talk to them? That's their freedom of speech right, and I'll entertain a conversation with them every single day. I represent them all equally. And there were really a wide range of folks up on the Hill today. I met one woman, and she told me she works with Afghan refugees and has a lot of sensitive information about their whereabouts and would not feel comfortable working with Congressman Santos's office. Another constituent, a Republican, telling me he's proud of the gains Republicans have made in recent years in New York and that Santos really compromises that. And there was just universal frustration, Jake, with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy um, and a real sense of disbelief among some that this can happen, that there are so few mechanisms really available to remove a sitting member, no matter how egregious the lie. Yeah, I mean, the list of lies that George Santos told to get elected is is too long to go through here, but it's practically everything on his resume. One of the most egregious is that his mother died because she was at the World Trade Center 
during the 9-11 attacks. It's not true, but he's made that claim many times. And amazingly, his guest tonight is going to be a firefighter who actually was at the World Trade Center on 9-11. Is that right? Yeah, Santos has long suggested that his mother died of the residual impacts of caught up in the cloud of 9-11. And what we found was that immigration records show that she wasn't even in the country at the time. That firefighter, though, Jake, Michael Weinstock, evidently thinks that the issue of 9-11 first responders receiving adequate medical care is worth the association with Santos. But it's coming at a price for him. He lost his job at a law firm as a result of, of agreeing uh, to be Santos's guest. Oh, wow. All mm-hmm. right. Eva McKen, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning now to our sports lead, where the King is just 36 points away from becoming the NBA's all-time high scorer. Los Angeles Lakers star LeBron James has the chance to do just that this evening in just a few hours, passing Lakers legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's 1989 record of 38,387 points. CNN's Omar Jimenez somehow convinced our bosses that it was a legitimate assignment and he is inside Los Angeles's Crypto.com arena where the Lakers are going to take on the Oklahoma City Thunder in just a few hours. Omar, I'm very jealous of the assignment. Do you think the Kings going to make history tonight? Look, this is this is potentially history. You guys got State of the Union history on the East Coast. Here on the West Coast, we are looking at potentially basketball history. And look, 36 points away. He's averaging only 30 a game. Only That's a lot in the NBA. But he went for over 40 in a game last month. Anything is possible tonight. And LeBron himself even said he looked at this milestone as one of those records that you never thought would actually be broken. And for good reason. We're talking more than 38,000 points at the highest level of basketball in the world played over the course of 10 or 20 seasons for the King. And you look at the other people on the list, Michael Jordan is fifth. You got Malone coming in uh, uh, up there as well. You got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at the very top, LeBron just after him, Kobe on that list as well. But obviously fans are going to be looking tonight to see if LeBron comes out firing to get over 36 and just take care of business tonight. I have a feeling it's going to happen. And if it does happen tonight, does this end the conversation of him being the greatest of all time, in your opinion? Look, I I don't know if that conversation ever ends for the world as a whole. But for me personally, I do think if LeBron James becomes the all-time leading scorer in the NBA, he does solidify himself as the greatest of all time. That is on the record for me. We can duke it out in the comments <laughs> for anybody watching. But obviously, LeBron's got four championships to Michael Jordan's six, which is who he gets compared to. But you got an all-time leading scorer. You got tops in the league, among the tops in the league for points per game over the course of his career. Top five in assists as well, which is unbelievable considering the fact he's not even a point guard. So when you put all of those things together i think at least the people here in the building tonight are going to agree with me on that people online you know whatever we'll we'll figure it out (laughs) how expensive are tonight's tickets not for you because obviously you have a press pass but for 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 a regular joe (laughs) 
I mean, look, it's the resale market that is really going crazy at this point. So uh, if you want to sit in the way, way back, it's already going for hundreds of dollars. But if you want to get down to these seats, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars, all the way up to $75,000 just for the chance to watch history tonight. And again, it's more than LeBron is averaging per game. So it might not happen tonight. And if it doesn't, the next chance will be on Thursday against the Milwaukee Bucks, which is, of course, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's former team before he played for the Lakers. So ticket prices there even higher on the resale market right now than the ones for tonight. But obviously, it's not chump change. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars just to sit in some of these seats and be as close to history as possible. All right, Omar Jimenez in Los Angeles, thank you so much. Be sure to join me tonight for CNN's coverage of President Biden's State of the Union address. It all starts at 8 p.m. Eastern, just in two hours. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. All two hours sitting there like a, like a delicious plum. Our coverage continues with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.